so welcome everyone to tonight's meeting group meditation session. Before we meditate, we have to take some time to go over the things that are useful in the meditation practice. And of course, the most useful thing to us, as we always make very clear, are the four foundations of mindfulness. So that's what's quite often the topic of discussion. Tonight I thought I would go over the benefits of the practice of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, but sort of keeping with the general theme of late, I thought I'd tell some more stories. The stories in the Buddhist literature, including the Pali Canon and the commentaries, sometimes seem to go a little bit over the top, and most Buddhist teachers will agree that probably most of the events recounted in the stories are embellished, or have been embellished over time, that's common. Um, there's many people who would say the stories are outright lies or outright, fa- uh, not lies, but fairy tales, fables, legends, <coughs> that they were never meant to be real or that they were just invented by monks later on. Now in Buddhism we understand um, that the universe is a lot uh, bigger and more broad, more and diverse than we can generally understand. I mean, scientists tend to understand this as well, but they think of it in a physical sense, because their whole um, their whole field of of investigation is physical. All of their tools, all of their methods, they're all based on the physical, which, as I've said before, is something that can't be directly known. Um, and so it requires all sorts of fancy um, methods and, and uh, systems and, and so on. Now, taking, taking as we do it that the, the existence of the mind as axiomatic, then we have a whole other way of looking at the universe. And we see the universe in terms of the malleability and the diversity of mind, and so the mind has uh, has a great amount of of malleability or changeability, and there's the opportunity for many things to arise, and people who practice meditation are able to experience this. I have a story, when I was a child, I was doing some... uh, just playing around, doing some um, meditation. I didn't have anyone teach me. I read some books, and I just started playing around. And I eventually got to this state where suddenly my mind flew out of my body, flew out of the top of my head, and floated downstairs. And I saw my younger brother um, drop something on the floor. And then when I got up, when I, my mind went back into the body, I got up and walked downstairs. I really saw it happen. So it means I had seen it happen before it actually happened. So 
uh, people who have these kind of experiences, they they come to see that actually the mind is uh, is quite a bit more malleable than we think it is, and and reality is much more malleable than we think it is. And these laws of physics, which are so uh, thought to be so uh, set in stone, are uh, are also subject to the malleability of the mind and the changeability of the mind. <coughs> So some of these stories may seem fantastic, but we should keep an open mind, um, at least, at least for the purpose of getting the moral of the story. The stories are moral in 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 character. It's not so important to believe in the reality of some of the fables and magic sh- uh, displays and so on. What's important is that we get the the sort of the moral of the story. Okay. So that being said, I'd like to talk a little bit about the benefits of practicing four foundations of mindfulness, which I often talk about. So the five standard benefits are for purifying the mind, for um, overcoming sorrow, lamentation, and despair, and all kinds of mental illness, for number three, and for destroying or doing away with all kinds of suffering, both bodily suffering and mental suffering. And number four, number four, uh, to attain the right path. Uh, and number five, to attain the right goal, having followed the path, which is to attain Nibbana or Nirvana, freedom from suffering. So these I've gone over before for most, most meditators, and I put these things up on the internet and so on. I talk quite a bit about these five benefits and how they work in meditation. So today I thought I'd give some examples that they give in the in the ancient text. The first example the first one, purification of the mind. Well we understand that you know purification has many different types. The mind becomes pure even at the moment when we start to meditate. So our mind is uh, pure in that moment. At the moment when we say rising, at the moment when we say falling, and we really know that the belly is rising, and that's all we know. We don't make more of it than it is. We don't attach any meaning or label or significance to it other than just rising. Our mind is full of this awareness of rising. And then the falling. So the mind is pure. There's no time, there's no chance for liking or disliking, for greed or anger or or, uh, judgment to arise for delusion to arise. <clears throat> and so this is a kind of purity. Um, and as we understand, we recognize that actually meditation practice is very useful for this. Actually, as you practice on, your mind becomes pure in another way. You start to understand things for, for, for what they are. And you see you're able to catch things before they arise. Normally we would... Um, have this mistaken idea that we could find happiness in ways that weren't really going to bring us happiness, in things that weren't really going to bring us happiness. When we practice meditation, we come to see this, and we realize that this isn't going to make me happy. And so we don't follow after that. We don't chase after that uh, that experience again. Until eventually we, we really are able to experience the reality of of the universe, that everything arises and ceases. Everything that arises is of the nature to cease. 
means everything that is of the nature to arise, all of that is of the nature to cease. There's nothing that arises and then doesn't cease. So it means that there's nothing that could come to you that you wouldn't ever have to let go of, even including our own mind, which arises and ceases incessantly. So when we talk about how this works in meditation, we have these, uh, these examples. We have examples of, of animals, actually, animals that were listening to the Buddha's teaching. There's a story of a bird, for instance, and it was a parrot, I believe, who went to stay with the bhikkhunis, the female monks. And they took care of this parrot. I think it was injured in a storm, and so they took care of it, and they taught it meditation. They taught it to say ati, which means bones. Uh, and so there's many different kinds of meditation. This meditation on bones is, is just one of many. You know, someone was probably playing with a parrot and taught it ati, which means bones. <clears throat> this is one of the ways of approaching uh, reality is to start to look at the, the parts of the body in order to get rid of our attachment to the body. So they would say to themselves, ati, ati, bones, bones, bones. And one day this parrot was flying around, you know, and it got, it got caught by an eagle or a hawk or something, some large bird snatched it up and was going to, was going to kill it. And so the bird shouts out, ati, ati, or it, it falls back into the meditation mode and it says to itself, ati, ati, and its mind becomes so pure that it just has this strength and this power, and the hawk, is the, the hawk is just overwhelmed, or the eagle is just overwhelmed, and lets it go. You know, this, this very strong, you know, you can know this with people, when people have very strong personalities, they're able to get what they want, and it's very difficult uh, to, to fight with them, these people who are overbearing, or who are very strong personalities. And this can come from meditation, you have this sort of power, and this your, what you say has weight, what you do has, has power to it. There are stories of, of, you know, animals that even when they just listen to the Buddha's teaching without having practiced it, they're able to uh, gain this purification of mind. This story of... Uh, of a frog. There's, there was this frog that was listening to the Buddha's teaching and then was stabbed on its back. Just listening to the, the, the words of the Buddha, the, these Pali words. And then it became born as, a, as an angel. When it died from a frog, it was born immediately in heaven. And it's like, what happened? And realized that just by listening to the Buddha's teaching. Here we are, you see, here we are coming to practice what we call the four foundations of mindfulness. This is really the key to freedom from suffering. It's the, the, the key to the door to our cage, to our, our prison cell. Whenever we're in this suffering state, mindfulness is like the, the, the key to everything, the key to freedom. It's the, um, the treasure map or the, um, the way out. And so even, even, even just to hear the words, hear of these four foundations of mindfulness, it starts to calm the mind down. 
it starts to when you hear people talking about things when you listen to this talk on you know, understanding things when people come to visit often they'll ask questions and we'll give them advice and it just calms them down right away even though they haven't practiced sometimes they think that just coming to listen is enough sometimes they're not able to have the time to practice and so they come back and every time they hear the the words being spoken when you hear someone talking about how to be mindful and and explaining you know the wrong way to approach things and the right way to approach things this is why in the buddha's time people could become enlightened just by listening to his teaching even even when meditators nowadays listen to the teachings sometimes they feel calm and peaceful sometimes they're even able to practice many times practicing when we're listening to someone talk about meditation practice um, we can gain real insight and uh, even come to let go and be free from suffering even when we're uh, when we're just sitting listening because first of all we have to stay very still and second of all our attention is captured and focused on meditation the actual practice of meditation is uh, is of course much more much more beneficial and this is the, the purification that we're looking for now there's a number of stories of monks who became pure I could pick any number of stories one that's really poignant is Angulimala or Angulimala Angulimala was a thief uh, a thief, a murderer um, you could say a serial killer in the time of the Buddha and there have been movies made of this Angulimala he killed 999 people they say his, his goal was to kill a thousand and the thousandth, the one thousandth person, they say, was his mother. Because his mother was coming to try to find him, to convince him of, of, of his wrongdoing. What happened was, according to the, the tradition, he was studying in Takasila, which was a city in ancient India, or Nepal, I'm not sure. And... His, he was the best student. He was actually a very um, very special sort of person. He had great merit and great perfections inside of him. And yet, he had this bad karma. What they say is that in, in, in past lives, he had, been, he had been killed. There was a group of, a large group of people, I guess 900 or 1,000 people. And they were hunting turtles or something and they were beating on this turtle this is what I've heard anyway I haven't read this and 999 of them were, were, were really keen on this or they were watching it and they were goading each other on to beat to kill this turtle and beat it and really torture it and there was one person who just, who, who just was disgusted by it and refused to take part and so he had this kind of karmic cycle of retrib retribution going and so his mind became very, very um, soiled as a result of this. And as a result of what happened was he, was he was so good in his school that all the other students were jealous. And so they lied to the teacher, saying that he had, uh, he had slept with the teacher's wife or, or he was flirting with the teacher's wife or something like that. We see this even nowadays. People are, are first of all, um, someone says something bad about someone else and right away we, our mind becomes so soiled and so defiled 
It's very easy to destroy people this way, destroy friendships. And this is what happened. The teacher was was convinced by the students that Angul, that Angulimala, at the time he wasn't called Angulimala, he was called Ahingsaka, which means the harmless one, which is sort of an ironic name. And when the teacher, you know, he was trying to find a way, so he thought, okay, I'll figure a way to destroy this student of mine. I'll tell him to go and fetch me the fingers of a thousand people. Go and kill a thousand people for me and fetch with their fingers. And this is how he came to be known Angul, as Angulimala, because he was collecting these fingers. Anguli means finger, mala means a garland or um, a wreath. And he would wear this garland around his neck, just a garland of finger bones or uh, hack, dismembered fingers, one from each victim. And so he went and he killed 999 people, and he was intent on killing the 1,000th, and he didn't, his mind was so, so spoiled, so soiled, so, so distorted, that he didn't even recognize his own mother. And he was all set to kill his mother, and then the Buddha came by. And this is a very poignant story. If you ever watch these movies, there's a very good movie done in Thailand. And when he saw the Buddha, he was just sort of overwhelmed and taken aback. And so his mother was, his mother didn't see him at the time, and he was sneaking up on her. And she just kept going through the forest. She was trying to find him. And by the time he turned around, she was gone. So he decided to chase after the Buddha instead. And so he ran up to the Buddha, but as he ran, the Buddha started walking away, or kept walking away. And somehow Angulimala wasn't able to catch up. The Buddha made this, this uh, determination that Angulimala wouldn't be able to catch him. And so even though the Buddha was walking very slowly, Angulimala was running as fast as he could. He still couldn't catch the Buddha. Until finally he was, he was so out of breath that he, he, he collapsed on the ground and yelled after the Buddha, Stop, stop. And the Buddha kept walking and said, I have stopped, Angulimala, it's time for you to stop. And he just kept walking. And Angulimala shouted at him, what do you mean? You are running away. I've stopped. And the Buddha turned around and said, you haven't stopped. He said, here you are creating more and more bad karma, you know, continuing this cycle of violence and horror and fear and suffering. For me, I have put down the weapon. I have put down my weapons. I have put down all anger, all vengeance. I have no interest in hurting anyone. I have stopped. It's time for you to stop. And he was so perfect and so clear and so sharp that it just hit Angulimala and it sort of woke him up. And it was finally someone giving him the right advice. This is also very common. When people give you the wrong advice or the wrong teaching, or when you get it in your head, uh, the wrong idea, this is very difficult to change. This is the, the worst impurity, is wrong view. And this is why we say it's worse than, than, uh, than any other evil. The Buddha said, there's no, there's no worse evil. He said, I know of no worse evil 
than these views that people stick to. When someone sticks, holds fast to a view, wrong view, one that's not in line with reality. And this is the worst kind of evil. And so Angulimala, he was suddenly freed from this wrong view, and that's really all it took, because he had no malice towards any of these people. He was just, uh, well, he was caught up in this, this round of, of vengeance, which we all get caught up in. We find that we meet people in this life that we've never met, and we love them, or we meet people and we hate them. We can't stand this person, or we, we are so attracted to that person, and so on. When we meet certain people, we're, we find we can become very good friends, when we meet other people, we find we don't get along at all. And so Angulimala became a monk. This is an example of how, you know, just considering and, and, and you know, looking at things in a new way can really purify the mind. And Angulimala, of course, went on to become enlightened. Uh, it, it sort of, you know, it, it gives confidence to all of us because certainly we're not as bad off as Angulimala and yet he was able to become enlightened. Of course he was beaten by, he went on alms round and people when they saw him they, they threw things at him and they beat him and so on. So he was, he, he had to pay for it. It's not that he was suddenly free. Uh, it was very difficult for him but he was still able to do it. He was able to purify his mind and get rid of all of this malice and evil and, and bad ideas in his mind. This is, I think, a really good example of how meditation helps to purify the mind, how Buddha is teaching. The second um, benefit of practicing meditation or, or sort of goal that the Buddha had in mind from the practice was overcoming mental sickness. And uh, Mental sickness is a term that I use kind of loosely. Some people don't like this term to be used with things like depression or uh, sa even sadness or sorrow or mourning and so on. But these are some kind of mental sick illness. The mind is not uh, in a good shape. The mind is clinging to something and it's suffering. Anytime that the mind is in a suffering state, and here we're specifically talking about these extreme states of suffering where the mind gets into a uh, rut of suffering. And I've talked about before how we get over these, you know, these are one of the greatest things about meditation is that all of these mental sicknesses that people suffer from and take medication for, you know, are sometimes to no avail to the point that nowadays they've said that these things are worse than placebos. Well, these ADD drugs or uh, antidepressants and so on, they're actually worse than just taking sugar, these placebo pills according to study, recent studies, which means they've just been lying to us or you know, making data up to make money off of people's uh, mental troubles. And although I do, I do know some people who it's helped, so it's not, it's not entirely a problem. Um, but it's certainly a very roundabout way of getting at what is something we directly experience every day, and that's the mind. Why we should use something physical to cure the mind is really a, a, an important question we should be asking. The meditation, on the other hand, is something free from side effects, and it's something that really directly uh, attacks all of these things. That through the practice, we're able to 
see the situation clearly and uh, separate our thoughts and our the object of our um, suffering and the actual suffering itself. So we focus on the suffering and we forget all about what it is that's causing us suffering. For instance, a, a past memory or a future worry. Um, you know, we can't sleep at night worrying about our sleep. Oh, I have to sleep. Oh, what time it is. We forget about all that and we just focus on this stress, this worry, and our insomnia goes away. Our mind becomes calm and we do actually fall asleep. In depression, we stop focusing on what is making us depressed, our, our unemployment or our loss of this or loss of that. Um, we're able to let go of that and just focus on the emotions and we're able to live our lives much freer and much um, more calm and peaceful. Now the example we always give, there are two examples. I'd like to give um, at least one of these. I'll just give one of them because we don't have any time left. Um, this is the story of Santati. Santati was a king's minister and he, or he was in, he was uh, a soldier, I think, or a general or something. He did something, he went and killed a bunch of an uprising, quelled an uprising, and so the king was very proud of him. And so the king gave him his his throne for seven days. He said, you can be king for seven days as a reward for for, for his help, for his service. And this man, so he made the most of it. He rode on the, this elephant and he had these women dancers, and he he was drunk all all seven days. He just got drunk, and you know, total, total hedonism, total debauchery. And on the seventh day, he was uh, he was riding on his elephant off to the park. He was going to see this these women who dance, these half naked women, dancing for him, and whatever kind of pleasures he would seek. And he saw the Buddha going for alms round with Ananda. And so the Buddha was walking on alms, and he saluted the Buddha by, I believe, by raising his or by tilting his head or something like that, because he was sitting on the elephant. And he was all drunk, so he couldn't like raise his hands to salute the Buddha. He was, had to hold on to the elephant, and so he just lowered his head like that. And the Buddha smiled at him. And Ananda saw the Buddha smiling, and he said, "Buddhas don't just smile because they see someone they like." When the Buddha smiles, it has great meaning. It's called Hasitupada Jitang. It's a very special mind state. Why Arahants? Why enlightened beings smile? It's a special smile. And so the Buddha, so the Ananda asked the Buddha, "Why? Please tell me, Venerable Sir, why are you smiling?" And the Buddha said, "You see that that minister Santati on the elephant. He said, today, this evening." You know, he's all drunk up on his elephant. He's going up to, you know, just totally immersed in wearing, you know, all of the king's jewels and the king's robes and crown and everything. The Buddha said, tonight he's going to come to me and ask to ordain. And when he practices meditation for some time, he'll become, he's going to become an arahant. And all of the people were crowding around and they heard the Buddha say this and they all started laughing. See, there's always two groups of people. There's the one group of people who don't believe and the one group of people who believe say the followers of the Buddha who say, you know, the Buddha's always right. So the group of people who didn't believe, they said, oh yeah, here, now we've got a chance. They were all excited. They said, okay, now he's just looking at me, he's just talking off his, 
you know, talking, say, spouting nonsense. Here, today, we're going to see that we're going to prove that this guy has no clue what he's talking about. Now we've got a perfect example of how he just says nonsense. And the other group is like, oh, this is great. They're all excited as well, they say. Today, we have a chance to see the wonder of the Buddha. And so they're all waiting around. The Buddha went on alms round, and then they, and the people come to the monastery to see what happens. What happens is this this man he goes to uh, he goes to see this his favorite dancer, this woman who is who is just so beautiful and such a wonderful dancer, and she comes out on stage and she'd been starving herself for seven days to be very thin and and I guess beautiful, and. As a result of that, she comes out on stage and suddenly she's she's just so uh, so starved that her nervous system collapses and her you know whatever her spinal cord just gets cut or something and she dies right then and there on the stage and just collapses dead right in front of this guy's eyes and he's all drunk and suddenly he sees this and it just like sobers him up. And he's just so distressed. You know, people get like this about silly things. Um, you know, gets, they get attached to people. They can see how people, when they lose a loved one, they, they can kill themselves or they can be totally distraught and, and lost for a long time and have to take medication or so on. And he became like, like just, just a little bit you know, insane. and He didn't know what to do. And right away he thought of the Buddha. He thought, only the Buddha can cure me of this suffering. And so he went to see the Buddha, and the Buddha taught him the te- taught him, you know, impermanence. He said to him, you know, something like these, you know, everyone has to die, and, and you, you can't, everything in the world is impermanent. You can't be sure what's going to happen. The problem is not what happens. The problem is our attachment to it. And we get this way with many, many things, not just people, but with, um, with belongings, with status, with money, um, even with things that, that, that give us pleasure. Because often it's a cycle in the mind, in the brain. The brain has all these chemicals in, them, in the brain, in it. And we become attached to this chemical reaction. We, they say it's the addiction process, where the brain releases chemicals, and every time it releases them, it releases fewer and fewer and fewer until you need to have a more extreme, right? It's like any physical process. As you use the physical process, it starts to wear down. It starts to get less. It starts to stretch in, in one sense. This is a very physical thing. And so what happens as you use this process and you create these pleasant sensations, it becomes less and less pleasant because the system is stretched, is, is elastic, it's expanded, it becomes loose. This is, this is scientists, they know this, this is, this is common knowledge, that uh, this is how addiction works, this is why we experience this. Why is it that you can't have the same experience every time? You watch something, a movie, why is it that when you watch it the second time you don't have the same uh, feeling? Um, when you eat good food once, twice, three times, why is it it slowly loses its flavor? In the mind, as you become more and more addicted, you need more and more extreme pleasures to really set off the, the reaction to the extent that is, ple- is actually pleasing. 
And this, so this is how, how suffering works when you don't get it and then you, you can't get what makes you happy. Then you have this extreme need, this lack of, of these chemicals and you can't get this, this chemical reaction. This is where the mind comes in because then it's totally up to the mind as to whether you're going to like that or not like that, whether you're going to be upset by that. So when the mind, of course, it works together with the brain, and when there's the liking again and again and again, then in the same way there's going to be the suffering when you don't get what you want. When we use mindfulness, we're able to overcome this. And this is what Santati saw, he was able to overcome. And right then and there, wearing his, his, his uh, finery and his jewels, he became enlightened, just listening and, and considering and just learning to let go. And the monks couldn't believe this, and the, they said, you know, how, how could he possibly become, should we call him a monk, should we call him a, a priest, should, what should we call him? And the Buddha said, should we call him a Brahmin or a Samana, a Shaman? They had these two types of people, and they said, Buddha said, it doesn't matter what you call him, you know, you can, you can be wearing gold and jewels, you can be wearing all of the luxury of in the lay life, it's all to do with the mind. This is one story that we don't often tell, so I thought I'd, I'd bring up this story. So this idea of how in the world we can become very silly about uh, our attachments to people. And it wasn't his, you know, they weren't married or anything, it was just uh, some dancer who he had come to become very fond of. The third, um, the third goal of the Buddha in the practice is simple over, simply overcoming suffering. And this, we always have to separate bodily and, bodily and mental suffering. Because bodily suffering we often have to uh, deal with or put up with. And there's this good story for this one as well. And I'll try to be brief, because I know we all want to get on with the meditation. There was this man who was very rich, and he gave up his, his wealth to his younger brother and went off into the forest, or went off to the Buddha to become a monk, to practice meditation in the forest. But his younger brother's wife became jealous and thought, was afraid that he would come back and take his money. If he ever came back, he would want a portion of the money that he had given. So she thought to kill him, to get rid of him. And this was you know, a very sort of wicked sort of idea. And so she hired these thugs to go and kill this, this monk. This is the background. What happened was these thugs came up to this guy and he was really intent on his meditation. And so he wasn't even scared or worried about this. He was at a point where he was like, die, okay, if I die, I die. And so these thugs came up and said, okay, say your prayers, we're going to. We've been hired to kill you. This is your, say your last. And they were kind of nervous, actually. It's hard to kill. You can't just go up and kill one of these guys in the forest. They're often worried, afraid that they're going to have magical powers. So they, they were hesitant and they actually talked to him. And he said to them, he said, no, no, I, you can't kill me yet. I'm not finished meditation. Please come back in the morning. And they said to him, there's no way we can do that. This first chance you get, you're going to run away or fly away or something. You're going to get up and leave. And so, you know, he, he was so fixed. At this point, his mind was, was very, very strong in concentration. And he picked up a stone and he broke both of his legs with his big stone, just smashed his his kneecaps until they broke and it was very clear that his legs had been broken and he said look I'm not going to run away you come back in the morning please uh, you can kill me then 
And so they were like, whoa, this is where, the, you know, the, the sort of the fear and the awe comes into play. And so they step back and they, they let him meditate. And he just focused on the pain. This is apparently a true story. Focusing on this pain and saying to himself, pain, pain. This is a good story for meditators because often we, uh, we complain about our little bit of pain that we have. But actually, if we compare it to someone like this monk, that's actually very little. And he was able to become enlightened as a result. Whenever people have very strong pains, it can be a very good meditation tool because it really forces you to let go. There's nowhere to run. It's just so strong that you have to finally just let go. There's no way out. And this state of letting go, then the mind doesn't give rise to more uh, experience. And this is where our mind uh, goes into this cessation experience where you're able to be free from suffering for some time. And so he became enlightened. Once he became enlightened, then he passed away before they were, before these thieves came, to, these thugs came to kill him. He passed away from the, 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 um, the injury. This is the third. The fourth reason why we practice is to attain the right path. And while I don't think I'll give any more stories here, I think we'll just talk a little bit about it. The right path, I mean, this is the path of practice. There are many people. Angulimala is a wonderful example for this one. Um, we have many examples even nowadays of meditators who come and just like Angulimala were on the wrong paths. We have people who are um, drug addicts, people who are um, you know, into alcohol or into, um, into many, many different vices, getting involved in... in um, addiction and are able to come and, and, and change their lives or people, people who are into, into unwholesome things people who are into killing uh, I had a, one student who was a biologist and uh, you know, he said to me he was so torn because he wanted to practice meditation but you know, he was just feeling so guilty all the time about cutting up rats and I just said to him you have to choose There's no, I have no solace for you I can't give you any comfort. It's up to you. You want to be a meditator, you meditate. If you want to be a scientist, you kill rats, but you can't do both. And he switched. He stopped. He's no longer a scientist. He now works for the government in Canada, as last I heard. He, he just stopped. You know, he was fourth year biology. He was doing his thesis. He was going to get his, his master, his honors, no, his master's honors, but uh, an honors degree in biology. And he changed, he gave it up, and he went to do public service in the government of Canada. This we have many, many examples. Myself as an example, I used to do many, many bad things. Drugs, uh, alcohol, women, music. The music's not so bad, but just the whole scene of, of uh, you know, vice and debauchery and, and general addiction. Uh, murdering. I was a hunter, and I never thought much of of just killing insects or animals and so on. It was never a big deal for me. Living on a farm, living in the countryside, and these kind of things you just completely do away with. Your mind uh, won't accept them anymore. This this coarse, evil behavior, this cruelty, where you yourself don't want to feel these these. Uh, sensations and yet you would bring them on other people uh, your mind is too delicate is too uh, 
polished to accept this kind of uh, kind of evil and so you just do away with them this is natural for people when they come to meditate they feel guilty about many bad things they've done it just comes up and it's that guilt that sort of makes you realize that these are bad things you feel so, so ashamed whereas you have never felt ashamed before and you're able to, to, to give these things up realize how horrible it is to do these things and you realize for yourself without anyone telling you the fifth is to realize nir nirvana and of course there's no I can't think of any good story for this one anyway um, nirvana of course is the the samambonam the final result that we're all hoping for or, or striving for and it's important to not misunderstand this either because we often think of this as kind of nihil nih annihilation um, it is the annihilation but this is the Buddha said he's an, a nihilist if you want to call him that he said then there's one way which you could call me a nihilist he said it's the annihilation of evil de of evil states and this is what nibbana is or nirvana is when the mind never gives rise to greed never gives rise to anger never gives rise to delusion again when the mind has done away with these things through wisdom through understanding that these things are useless have no benefit they're the wrong way for catching yourself and realizing why you're, you're giving rise to unwholesome states and coming to understand and see things clearly and actually watching things and seeing them for as they are until finally you can live your life just watching, just knowing, just being aware. So it's not the annihila annihilation of, of the mind, in, at least not in this life. Of course, they say when you, when you attain enlightenment, you would, won't have to come back and be born again. If you attain a lower stage of enlightenment, even if you just see nirvana for a short time, you see the cessation where the mind enters into the cessation where everything is gone and you realize there's nothing worth clinging to. There's nothing that you could say as me, as mine, because it all just disappears. Then you can live your life. You can even be born again for some time until finally you, you become bored and you become disenchanted and actually go into a final cessation. But it's important to understand it's not you know, nirvana and then never come back or something. Nirvana is something that you can realize and then live your life, live out your life, a little more peaceful, a little more cleaner. So it's not something that we should be afraid of at all. It's something that helps us to see the truth of reality. And so this is this is the dhamma that I thought I would give today, sort of a little bit more detail and some examples and sort of something that we can maybe relate to a little bit better, so that when we practice, we can see what we're looking for. Um, the practice that we're talking about here again is mindfulness. So when we watch the rising and the falling, just watching it, saying to ourselves, rising and falling, this is purity of, purity of mind. This is helping us to come to see things clearly. When we walk, keeping the mind with the foot, we're stepping right, stepping left, and just in the present moment, not before or after, at the same time, and slowly building up our minds, strengthening and fortifying our minds and our, sharpening our faculties to the point where we can really see things clearly and finally throw off this um, blanket of, of suffering and, and, and evil that we are carrying around with us, of greed, of anger, of delusion, so we can see things clearly as they are. And so that's the Dhamma for today. I hope that's been uh, at least pleasant, so, a pleasant sort of start, so now we can 
step right into the meditation part where we actually put it into practice and come to realize some of these goals. So now we'll practice together until 9 o'clock. First we'll do mindful prostration, then walking, and then sitting.